Hello, friend. Hello, trusted companion on the ongoing journey that is this The Tully Show. I'm so pleased, as always, to have you here. I am especially pleased for you that you decided to click on this week's episode. I guarantee you are going to enjoy it. You're going to get a lot out of the conversation that I had with Robert Sapolsky. I have been reading about his book everywhere. Everywhere that I trust, a news source that I use for my own personal information has been talking about his book, Determined. It is going to be on all of the year-end best-of lists, and I'm so pleased he was willing to spend some time with us. I'm even more pleased with just what a great conversation we had. It's a big, mind-bending topic the book, Determined, is all about, whether or not human beings possess free will. But Robert manages to make it accessible, understandable, human, kind of life-affirming. You're going to enjoy it, and then you're going to go enjoy the book. We'll get to that in a second. Real quick, you know what else you might enjoy? Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. You know the spiel. Three plus pods every single week. I'm doing the year-end wrap-up stuff, the news, the music, the holiday, the ridiculous Christmas music that washed-up artists are trying to foist upon us. You're buying everybody else a present. Why not buy yourself a present? Give yourself the gift of way more of me. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, Coming to you live on tape. From an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a professor of biology and neurology at Stanford University who has released one of the most talked about and thought-provoking books of the year, Determined, The Science of Life Without Free Will. Hello and welcome, Robert Sapolsky. Well, thank you for having me on. Glad to be here. Like most people, uh, I found the arguments in this book a little challenging to, to wrap my head around, and I've had the benefit of spending some time with the book and knowing I was going to speak to you today, So, uh, unlike most people who are going to hear our conversation. So let's just try to go through this piece by piece, starting at the top. From the outset of the book, you state, here's a quote, we are nothing more or less than the cumulative biological and environmental luck over which we have had no control that has brought us to any moment, end quote. Free will is an illusion, no more real than gods, demons, or sorcerers pulling strings to mess with us mere mortals. Now, like most people, I think I instinctively bristle at that idea, and I start immediately looking for ways to dismiss it out of hand. Why do you believe I have that impulse, and why do you think most people are going, wait, no free will, this is crazy. Why do we want to do that with this idea you have? Well, because it's uh, very comforting uh, to have the sense that we have some agency, that we are not just being buffeted by like the randomness of like brownian motion and fate and everything else that's made us who we are and a number of evolutionary biologists have in fact thought in terms of if we were going to evolve to be a species that's smart enough to know that someday our hearts are going to stop beating and the sun is going to die and the 
glaciers are melting, all of that, um, that the only way we could have uh, held it together as a species is to evolved a very healthy capacity for self-deception and burying heads in the sand and living off of comforting non-realities. And, you know, it's uh, very comforting at times to uh, believe that we actually are the captains of our fate. The alternative is a drag for a lot of people. There is a compelling case to be made that we, uh, I have, I know you're a, a parent as well. I have two children. One is entering the, the post Santa Claus era of his, uh, of his uh, early adolescence. One who's firmly in the middle of it. Um, I'm not the first person to make the comparison between Santa Claus and Jesus, um, or, and the other world religions. There's ample, uh, evidence, I guess, to, to suggest, right, that we have this amazing capacity for self-deception and that when one fails us, we're very good at coming up with the next one that we, we we ourselves are able to talk ourselves into. Um, one might go into, I, even knowing your professional background, I went into your book expecting arguments based in more in logic, philosophy. I'm not sure exactly what I expected. But as the very subtitle of the book itself says, um, underpinning your case, uh, the underpinning of your case is primarily uh, scientific, specifically biological. Um, I know this is uh, not an easy ask, but can you, you sketch in layman's terms the biological case for us not having free will? Well, maybe the best place to start with that is where people get gummed up with their strongest sense that, uh, that they are, <coughs> sorry, that they're experiencing free will which is you're in the moment you got to choose vanilla or chocolate ice cream you think about it you think about your tastes you think about which is going to feel better on your tongue you choose you choose one of them and it feels like you've just you know exerted enormous agency and because you formed an intent you knew what the consequences of that tent was likely to be, which is if you said strawberry, you were likely to get strawberry, and that's not where you wanted fake to take you. Um, and you knew that you had alternatives. That feels like, you know, intent free will right there. And where people then get derailed is that they fail to ask this critical question, where did that intent come from? Where did that intent to ask for that flavor of ice cream? Where did that intent to come from? Where did that intent come from to pull a trigger, to propose marriage, to whatever it is in that moment? And where it came from is every moment that came before that. What was going on in your brain a second ago? What your hormone levels were like this morning? What your recent months have been like in terms of trauma or epiphanies or wonderful things or horrendous ones, all of which will have changed the function of your brain, what your adolescence was like when you were finishing construction, the final phase of it, and the most important part of your brain, your childhood, your fetal environment, which has a shocking amount of influence on the adult you became, your genes, the culture your ancestors invented centuries ago, because that shaped how your mother was mothering you within minutes of birth. And what you see is, whoa, where'd that intent come from? From biology, interacting with environment over which you had no control, stretching from a second ago to a million years ago. And when you put all those influences together, there's not a crack anywhere in there in which you could shoehorn in 
our conventional notion of free will. Uh, you know, you started thinking about um, the the notion of free will, the validity of the notion of free will from a, a very young age. Personally, um, what do you think it was that attracted you to this question above all others in a way that translated into essentially your life's work? Well, I was 14 when I decided there's no free will. Um, I was I was raised very, very devoutly and ritualistically religious in a way that had generated some tremendous, seemingly insoluble contradictions <laughs> that were hitting very close to home and that were generating all sorts of adolescent angst. Um, and it was clearly having a large impact on me. And one night at two in the morning, I woke up and there was sudden clarity. I said, ah, I get it. There's no God. And there's no free will. And the universe is this empty and different place without meaning. And I basically have felt those things ever since. Now, if I may play devil's advocate, I'm not a, by nature or in practice a science person. But um, if you went into the stuff that you're studying with a gut conviction, I would have to say, as an impartial outsider, it's a little convenient that you went in and found the science that proved the gut conviction that you had when you were 14. How do you reply to that? Well, besides saying that's a fantastic question and like appropriately challenging, mm -hmm. um, what that does is tap into this whole notion that like, ooh, we have no free will, but you just chose to become a particle physicist, or you just chose to become a fuller brush salesman, or whatever. You just chose, you just chose, you just changed the course of your life. And one of the points that I bring in there, one of the things that gives people like tremendous anxiety about the notion that there's free, that there's no free will is, oh, great. You're saying nothing can change. And things could change enormously. Things change. People change unrecognizably in ways that are like hugely moving and earth shattering and all of that. But we do not choose to change. We are changed by the circumstances we are in and the sort of person we have become who is experiencing those circumstances. And in my particular case, uh, sort of circumstances had set me up to be a person who would conclude those things as a 14-year-old and change me in ways where that's what I would want to go find out more about. Having a 14-year-old's muddy, incoherent sense that the brain was kind of important. And well, let's add some more clarity to that. Having a vague, muddy sense that like early development and genes and why we evolved to be who we are were important. So let's go find out more about that. You know, you respond to the moments around you purely by definition in the way that you have become the person who you are, parentheses over which you had no control. Um, I know you uh, earlier in your career extensively studied primate behavior, specifically baboons. In what way, if any, does that area of research inform this area of research? 
Well, in retrospect, I've, I've, I've kind of skated in a couple of different professions. I'm, I'm a neurobiologist and sort of live in a lab doing things to neurons and genes and stuff like that. Um, but for more than 30 years, I also spent three, four months a year studying wild baboons in a national park in East Africa. And sort of the particular focus of both my lab work and field work was stress, the effects of stress on the brain. Why do some individuals, why do some individual socially complicated primates deal better with stress than others? Um, so that was sort of the, the package deal of my my day-to-day -day obsessions as a scientist. Um, but kind of what you do if you're straddling those two professions, is, you know, if you're a lab neurobiologist, you're spending your time talking to genetics people and molecular biologists and sort of the very nuts and bolts world. And then if you're spending part of each year, like looking at primate social behavior in the wild, you're talking to sociologists and weirdly, eventually psychiatrists, public health type people, ecologists, evolution. And, you know, you dabble in enough of those different professions and you begin to see after a while that all of those pieces collectively are what rule out free will. Like neuroscience does not provide you with a slam dunk that says that there's no free will. Physiological ecology doesn't do that. Evolutionary biology doesn't do that. Genetics, but you put all those pieces together and you see that they're not separate pieces. They all merge into one set of influences and, you know, control. And it's at that point that it kind of occurs to you that, you know, the science is pretty airproof at this point, airproof, airtight, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. yeah I think airtight's where, where we're going air, airproof function just as well for what you were trying to communicate. Okay. I'm curious. Well, you're going back and forth, baboons, humans, baboons, humans. At a certain point, do you start noticing when you're at Target or at a baseball game, man, we're really baboons. Do you start to notice the correlation? Well, yeah. Um, actually, where where primate dominance hierarchy sort of became most relevant for me, I think, was my very first faculty committee meeting as as a assistant professor back when of just looking at okay. So how's dominance playing out in this room here? Um, instead of snarling or displaying your canines or like forcing somebody else, some other baboon into a really compromising, embarrassing position to show, just to show that you could do it. Okay, who's reading their mail conspicuously throughout the whole meeting here? Who's glancing up every now and then only to make the sarcastic comment? Who's, okay, so that's the dominance hierarchy going on here you know when you study another primate species at great length um and this has been years and years of doing that and like implicit in that is you want to kind of make sense of who we are um you're struck by two conclusions one is we've got the exact same blueprint the same circuitry as every other primate out there we're made of the same stuff we have not invented new parts of the brain and that explains our humanness we don't have novel neurotransmit we're like every other primate out there and then 
We take that blueprint, that plumbing, all of that brain stuff that we share with all these other species, and we use it in ways that are just beyond bizarre and unprecedented. And that's what makes us interesting. We're activating the exact same parts of the brain when we're doing something savage and violent as some baboon, when he's savaging some other baboon's belly with his canine, and we do it by pressing a button and killing somebody on the other side of the planet with a drone. We do it when we feel fantastic empathy for somebody whose face we never see. We do, we're just like every other primate, except for the fact that we are unrecognizably different. And that's pretty damn compelling after a while. Let's talk through some of the, I guess, pragmatic elements of um, our, our free will uh, in, in practice or, or, or lack thereof. First of all, I think to an extent, all of us have come to accept more and more the limits on our free will. Certainly, you know, I read the articles about uh, a, a privileged child will be so far ahead of a child whose, you know, parenting or environment has been lacking in, in some severe way or ways that by the time the kids get to kindergarten, the 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 kid who's been well provided for is already has an insurmountable lead on on the the kid who's been relatively neglected. So we all know some of us are born on on third base. A lot of us are born on third base, speaking of the people who are going to be actually listening to this. And I mean, I've had personal experience. I remember one time I went for the longest run of my entire life. And, and when I got to the end of it, I ran almost the entire length of Manhattan. And when I got to the bottom, I decided I desperately needed soy milk. At that point, soy milk was still a novelty. I had never tasted soy milk, but I knew I needed soy milk. And even in the moment, I was like, there's probably, so I don't know, I don't know why I decided now, but I feel like it has something to do with the fact that I just spontaneously ran 13 miles. But on the other hand, I mean, I can't, everybody does this thought exercise. Well, hold on, I have free will. I'll give you an example. I hate smoked salmon. I could go to the store right now and I could buy a pound of it and I could eat all of it. Can you explain how that is not? Going against my my own judgment seems like a pure exercise of free will. In what way would you argue that is not the case? Okay, first off, you have a very strange brain, both <laughs> craving soy milk at a juncture like that and not it, craving smoked salmon it hit the spot one one of earth's delights smoked salmon uh -huh. but, um okay so you're at that juncture yeah um, you hate smoked salmon a lot you you hate it with every fiber of your soul and your your moral anchoring and your and yet suddenly just because you want to display free will, you go out and you buy some salmon and go home and can, you know, consume it. What it is that what went on in you in that moment? And what one has to start dissecting is, well, how do you wind up being the sort of person who would reflect on your actions? Not everybody does. Most people don't. How do you wind up being somebody who like values thinking about what motivates you? and how you became the sort of person you became. Okay, so we got to explain that. You had no control over that. How did you become the sort of person where if you then were fishing around for, I want to have a demonstration of free will. You know, I'm not the sort of person who would rob a bank, so maybe I should, nah, I'm not going to do that. How do you become the sort of person where that's not the sort of thing you would do? How do you become the sort of person where to show your free will? You wouldn't walk up to a stranger on the street and say, you have a wonderful smile. I hope you have a good day. 
maybe, you know, whatever the biology is of introversion, extroversion made you the sort of person where that was not your option. Maybe instead you think of what things do I have pet peeves about? Well, people who make sloppy, noisy sounds with their mouth when they chew, that's going to be hard to prove that. Salmon. I hate salmon. If I'm going to prove that I have free will, I'm going to buy and eat some salmon right now because I've always hated it. How did I become the sort of person where a gustatory display of my free will was the thing that seemed like the option to? Yeah, it's not by chance that you wound up being the sort of person who would decide to flex your perceived sense of free will at a moment like that, just to assure yourself that it was there. And to have the need to assure yourself you became that sort of person. And that somehow, out of some weird combination of whatever childhood traumas you were subjected to by salmon uh, doing horrendous things to you and like the genetic makeup of the taste buds in your tongue and who knows what else, that it wound up being salmon. That's the thing I'm going to do to prove that like I have free will. All right. Fair enough. Uh, let's talk about, in the book, you bring up uh, experiments conducted by Benjamin Libet. I'm saying that correctly? I don't know. I always call him Libet, but Libet, Oh, man. You might, you might be right, too. I, 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 I Googled it a week ago. I've already, I've already forgotten, to be honest. Yeah. Um, to me, this seems like the, uh, the, the scientific underpinning of like the quote-unquote gut decision. And this is something that resonates with me. I took a class one time in philosophy of religion, which is it's, it's a hilarious subject because there are these people <laughs> who make really good livings writing books philosophically proving not just the existence of God, but the existence of a loving God, of a loving Christian God. And that class made me arrive at the conclusion that what we all do is make gut decisions. And then if you're of a, an intellectual bent, you then start fishing for rational arguments that support this gut decision that you've made. I definitely think that, I mean, I think this is a fairly widely accepted theory at this point. That's how politics, our political orientations probably work as oh, well. Yeah. So can you talk about how these, we'll call them libet experiences, inform the arguments you're making? Well, Libet, and I, I sort of sarcastically say somewhere in the book that if you're writing a paper on the subject of free will, whatever kind of biologist or philosopher, it's like basically required by law that you mention Libet, Libet by the second paragraph or so. This was landmark earth shattering earth shattering experiment that was done in the 1980s and lots of people will know it's sort of broad outline you get a volunteer you sit him down and you say well here's a button whenever you feel like it press that button and we're going to wire up all sorts of things to your arm muscles just so we can tell when in fact you started to press that button and here's a big clock with like a two second sweeping hand and the second you form the intent to press the button, you know, glance at the clock so you could tell us exactly what time it was when you formed that intent. And meanwhile, we're going to put all sorts of electrodes all over your head. This was the 1980s, so this was primitive Neanderthal brain imaging techniques. But we're going to be able to look for a particular sort of electrical wave in your brain, which will tell you when the command was first sent to your muscles to press that button. And the earth-shattering finding was that your brain 
was sending a message to your muscles, start to push that button about three-tenths of a second before you consciously were aware of, I think I'm going to do that. Oh my God, everyone said on earth, your brain knows before you do. Hmm, interesting duality there that there's a you in there that's separate all that brain yuck and biology, that that was separable. But mainly at the moment we think we have formed an intent, as you said, that's just post hoc rationalization, like unconscious things in your brain have already decided. That proves there's no free will. And like big surprise, people have been like arguing about that ever since, whether it actually does show that or not. Is there a difference between intending to do something and becoming aware that you intend to do something? Is there a difference between your brain having an intent versus your brain having an urge? Like 40 years later, people still have conferences and fight about this. And which brings me back to the point that I started with, which is incredibly interesting science, but it is totally irrelevant to deciding if there's free will or not, because it's not asking the question, how do you become the sort of person who would intend to press that button at that point? And I don't just mean that in the very narrow sense of intending, okay, now I'm going to do it instead of waiting another second. How do you wind up being the sort of person, given who does these sorts of experiments, who was lucky enough and privileged enough to go to a university and somewhere along the way formed an interest in psychology? So you're taking Psych 101 and became the sort of person with a mixture of altruism and curiosity. So you'd sign up for one of those experiments and that you were sort of person with the self-regulation and, and like emotional regulation so that you would sign up to volunteer and actually show up there on time instead of screwing off and forgetting about it or be like recovering from drinking all night at your frat party the night before. And how do you become the sort of person who would sit there and sincerely like press the button as soon as you think of it instead of an oppositional sort of personality where you're thinking, ooh, I'm smarter than these psychologists. Here's a, I'm going to intentionally screw up their experiment. How do you become that sort of person who would sincerely do it instead of that other type? And how do you wind up the person who would walk into that lab there and see they're all busy with the previous volunteer, look around, nobody's looking, and steal somebody's laptop and run out the other end? You know, where did all those things come together so that you're the person sitting there pressing the button at that instant? And that's where it's the what was going on in your brain a second ago and a year ago and when you were a fetus and your ancestors and ecology and evolution that made you this sort of species instead of that sort. And that's where you see there's no free will. By the time you get to, I have just formed this intent, exactly as you said, what we're understanding about things like moral decision-making, what you're probably doing is post hoc rationalizing a gut instinct that you formed. But mainly by the time you're getting to forming an intent or forming an explanation for what you think your intent is, it's so long past the point where a free will discussion is relevant. Like, how do you become that sort of person? All of this correct me if I'm wrong, suggests that the brain is obviously very real. The mind is not. The mind is this epiphenomenal thing. That's the end product of all those molecules and ion channels and 
chemistry and God knows what else goes on in the brain. We're nothing more or less than that. And all you have to do is do like a radical intervention to manipulate somebody's brain to realize that, like cause something, a neurochemical event in your brain, such that one part of your brain is more focused in the action potentials. What do we... You have a cup of coffee in the morning and you make use of this chemical called caffeine and it changes the nature of who you are at that moment. You're somebody who is more capable of focusing on a task. And all you have to do that is multiply that a hundred gazillion times in terms of, oh, you turned out to be the sort of person who could have caffeine in the morning. Oh, you turned out the sort of person who doesn't have a brain that was pickled in alcohol when you were a fetus because your mother was alcohol. Oh, you turned out to be the sort of person who was raised in a culture where you know how to read and you can actually read about that, et cetera, et cetera. How you turned out to be that sort of person and we can kind of see, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 caffeine. You just did something to your brain a few seconds ago. But as you were saying, instead, look at somebody who, from the moment they were born, had every conceivable bit of bad luck. And what do you know? They turned out to be sitting in a county jail right now instead of sitting in a classroom in an Ivy League university. And we see exactly all of those things at play all that stuff that made us who we are over which we had no control. So if we accept this uh, belief, this argument, um, I guess the next step is where does that leave us in the book? You argue, um, uh, you know, you, 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 there's certain people in the NBA because they're natural born, amazing basketball players. And then there's the guys who worked really hard to be there. But tenacity is just as much of an innate gift as leaping ability. Um, you make the case that it makes no sense to uh, to hate. No, nobody is worthy of hate, and I gather as, as a corollary, nobody is worthy of admiration either. Is that does that follow? Yeah, because ultimately, if all we are is the sum of everything that came before, blah blah blah, um, it makes as little sense to hate somebody. Um, as it does to hate a hurricane or hate a virus that's good at getting into your lungs. And it makes as little sense to admire somebody um, or to feel that they are entitled to better things in life than the average person because they didn't earn it either. Um, it makes no sense to do any of those things. And among other implications of that, not only does a criminal justice system predicated on retribution make no sense, meritocracies make no sense either because none of us earned any of the things that we wound up with whether that's like a long happy fulfilling life or a long prison sentence none of us earned any of this all we are, are the end products of luck and if your luck is such that you have wound up with a corner office as the ceo Everything about our upbringing makes us instead decide that we saw agency and gumption and tenacity and all of that. And when you look at somebody who instead is, you know, floundering in the mud and the murk of like underachievement, um, all that we've been conditioned to do is look at that and come up with terms like self-indulgence and squandering and lack of when the going gets tough, the tough get goingness and things of that sort. Yeah, it has to radically change how you view the world. 
let me ask you about one small thing you said there, uh, specifically uh, meritocracy. Um, we still do need, for the best possible society, a meritocracy. I do want the person who is best qualified to be an air traffic controller controlling the air traffic, even if I understand that there's nothing innately special about that person or the decisions they've made that's allowed them to become better at that than any guy off the street. True? Great. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and in the same exact way, we want people who circumstances outside their control have caused them to become dangerous, menacing people kept off the streets and not able to harm other people. We want to be able to have a society in which dangerous people are kept from endangering people and where competent people are doing the things you really need them to be doing. And that's absolutely critical. Um, but we could do it amid subtracting out a notion of blame and reward. I mean, because implicit in blame and reward is we think it is okay that the world runs on treating some people way better than average for things they had no control over and other people way worse than average for things they had no control over. And then when that's all over with, then slather them in all sorts of myths about justice and that this is a world in which people get what they've earned and they haven't in the slightest. But amid that, this is not oh my God, we should have like criminals just running around the streets and we should have random people controlling air traffic and all of that. No, you could construct a world in which responsibility in both of those senses can be subtracted out and the roof doesn't cave in and the world becomes more humane. We could recognize by now that it doesn't make any sense to think that thunderstorms, horrible thunderstorms, are caused by old women with old with no teeth living on the edge of the village. There's no such thing as witches and witchcraft that could control the weather. And it's a much better world that we don't burn old ladies at the stake because we believe we understand what is responsible for the weather. And on the flip side, we've also learned that unless, I don't know, you're living in Buckingham Palace or something, that some people are not born and are meant to grow up to be like monarchs, that like God does not endow certain people with like the privilege and the, the entitlement to be king. Like we got that one sorted out. And I would say that like voting for your leaders, instead of it being the son of whatever warlord, you know, conquered your territory, that's a good thing. Also, we take responsibility out of that too. We figured out God does not choose people to become king. And we figured out that old women without teeth are not witches. And it's a bad thing when you burn them at the stake, if we enter like a mini ice age and things. And we've done that over and over. And in our own lifetimes, we figured out, oh, kids, a kid at school who's not learning how to read, it's not because they're lazy and unmotivated and words that are laden with a belief in free will. Turns out something screwy went on in like the fourth layer of this part of their neocortex, such that they flip around letters that have closed loops and they have dyslexia. And that's why they're shitty at learning how to read. They're not at fault. They're not unmotivated. Oh, they're not responsible for that biology. That's what's going on there. And not only do we learn like, to be more effective at teaching people 
how to read if they have trouble distinguishing Bs from Ps or things like that. But we're also not raising kids to think that they are lazy and underachievers and screw-ups. And then when they're 40, they learn the word dyslexia for the first time and say, oh my God, I've spent the first 40 years of my life hating myself for something that I was not responsible for. We've learned how to do that. We could subtract that out. And in every one of these cases, not only doesn't the societal roof cave in, the world is more humane. It's much better that we're subtracting free will out of our perceptions of realms in which we decide some people are entitled to better treatment than average, and some people are deserving a worse treatment. So this is obviously a deeply held, long-held conviction on your part, and yet you say you yourself have consistent, and I assume you would agree, you will always have trouble practicing what you preach. It's just so ingrained in us that we have free will that you say at best 1% of the time you are actively aware of the thing that you believe uh, and, and actually are able to put it into practice, that I didn't just do something amazing or I didn't just uh, have a moral failing because I decided to have a second ice cream cone or, or whatever. I'm curious, can you think of practical ways in which uh, in which you have put this uh, into practice in your life, this belief and what effects it has had on your life? And I know that you are a parent. And any, can you think of any way it's informed your parenting for better, for worse? What effect has that had? Well, just just to give you an example, um, my my wife is also a neuroscientist by training. Um, we have two kids who are young adults now, but back when, when they were little, there was this one day, like our four-year-old did something like mean to our two-year-old. And my wife and I sort of swooped in and did a, you're not a bad person, but that was a bad thing to do, doing all that sort of thing. And we're going on and on and wailing on our child. And then inevitably, like one of us, my wife or I would say something like, maybe we're being a little bit too hard on him. After all, he's got like no frontal cortex. Like we, we, we actually talk that way at home. Uh, so one of us would say, yeah, he's got like no frontal cortex. And then the other one would say, but yeah, how else is he going to develop a good one? And like just aware of that stuff playing out, but that's exactly where these sorts of insights come in. But I think more broadly, it just winds up being be very skeptical of things that seem intuitively obvious um, because there's all sorts of things that people in the past believed were intuitively obvious that, for example, you know, if you or I were sitting around 400 years ago as the same people, it would have seemed almost certainly just as a given sort of the, the privileges we stumbled into randomly in life to sit there and say, oh, certain people are meant for slavery. In fact, they're so incapable of taking care of themselves, it's a blessing for you to enslave them and like feed them now and then. And here we are centuries later, that one's not intuitively obvious anymore. Instead, it's intuitively obvious that you reach a very, very different conclusion about that and be very, very suspicious of whatever seems intuitively obvious as a moral stance about how you're judging people, um, because 100 years from now, that's going to seem shockingly unintuitive and, in fact, brutal and heartless. Um, like, just check your first responses and think about them a second time and a fifth time and think about parallels in your past 
or think about ways in which this is not echoing something in the past. Hold on, this isn't the same situation. This isn't the same thing being done to you. Whatever, just reflect, reflect, and be really suspicious of what seems like obvious. Oh, I just decided to do that. And that came out pretty well. And yeah, I'm kind of a better human than average. I'm kind of entitled to have my needs considered more than those of the average human. Yeah, be suspicious. I'm glad you brought up the the, the frontal cortex. This is uh, off the beaten path a little bit of of your book, but we hear this a lot. This is passing into I don't know. However, however, ideas get disseminated in the modern age. It's definitely something that you see on your phone uh, more often these days. Um, your frontal cortex is not fully developed until you're in your mid twenties. You literally are an unfinished person who's out there functioning in the world and being, you know, uh, you legally you have the responsibilities of an adult. You could be tried as an adult. It's so hard for me to accept that knowing that, you know, in antiquity, people started families before they were in their mid-20s, people led nations, people conquered other nations. To me, it's like saying that we don't finish, uh, our body isn't capable of fully digesting until we're in our mid-20s. This just seems like such a fatal flaw. And I guess there's other fatal flaws, like the fact that human beings are so dependent for so many years after they're born is not is not an ideal situation. But that's really the case. Our frontal cortexes are not fully responsible for what they are telling us to do until we're a third of the way through a natural lifespan as we currently understand it. Yeah, which is... Totally amazing. Um, I've wasted most of my life studying a part of the brain I now regret called the hippocampus. And I wish I had spent all these decades studying the frontal cortex instead, because it is so much more interesting. Um, because the frontal cortex makes you do the right thing when that's the hard thing to do, impulse control, long-term planning, emotional regulation. Like your frontal cortex's job is to whisper to the rest of the brain saying, I wouldn't do that if I were you. I know this seems like a great idea right now. You're going to regret it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And the circumstances of good luck or bad luck in life is what has given each of us the frontal cortex that we have at this moment, for better or worse. And on top of it, there's then this bizarre thing that it doesn't fully mature until you're about 25. That is absolutely correct. Um, among other things, what that explains is why adolescents behave in adolescent ways, because the parts of your brain that are involved in sensation seeking and novelty seeking and emotional tumult and froth and all of that has like all its cylinders running by the time you're about 13 and your frontal cortex is still like working its way through the instruction manual. No wonder like adolescence is a time of like floridly gyrating emotions all because the frontal cortex isn't there yet. Yeah, it doesn't fully mature until you're 25. And there's some amazing implications of this. The first one is, if that's the last part of your brain to fully mature, by definition, that's the part of your brain that is most sculpted by environment and experience and is least programmed by your genes. But the other implication is like, wow, 
what's the deal with this part of the brain? Why does it take 25 years? To, is it intrinsically like a more complicated building project than building the rest of your brain? Does it have fancy special neurons or circuit? No, not in the slightest. Why 25 years? Because doing the right thing when that's the harder thing to do is a very subtle sort of thing. And to pull that off right, you have to learn your culture's hypocrisies. You've got to learn how to recognize double dealings and backstabbings and real politic for what it is. You have to recognize what your society means when it says, thou shalt not kill. But if you kill that sort of person, we're going to give you a medal and vote disproportionately for you. We've got to learn all that stuff if you don't lie, except here's when you really do lie. And here's when it's to your back. We've got to learn all that stuff to incorporate it into having a frontal cortex that's really good at figuring out what is the right thing to do in any circumstance, because it is not straightforward, the sort of cultures and rationalizations we construct. We evolved, that part of the brain evolved, parentheses, our genetic makeup formed such that this is a part of the brain that's freed from genes because it's got to learn all this subtle stuff. When, when you give an offhanded comment, how to damn somebody with faint praise, how to do all this complicated sort of stuff. And that's why this part of the brain needs, needs like a 30-year lifetime to even get the parts wired up correctly. Which is to say, uh, at some point, maybe in a you know distant ancestor past, it formed, it became fully formed earlier on, and then it actually turns out it was a biological advantage. The people who did not, who's who's developed relatively late, this is the better way for the argument for the reasons you just gave. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's more likely to get you to turn out to be like some teenager who's shot to death trying to rob a liquor store. Um, of impulsive things like that. Why, like, you know, disinhibited behavior can be very, very disadvantageous in all sorts of uh, social settings. But for a complex species that has all sorts of social rules that really are not what they seem to be on the surface, um, you really cannot jump into it with like a lab rodent's frontal cortex that's up and running by the time you're a couple of weeks old. It takes a lot of sculpting and genes cannot specify that sort of subtlety. It takes a lot of sculpting to get that sort of brain. If we wanted to still be whatever we were 20 million years ago, yeah, frontal cortex was kind of important. You look at other primates, they've got delayed maturation of the frontal cortex, but not as much as we have. And yeah, this is something we had to evolve if we were going to become us. Uh, let me ask you two more mm -hmm. questions. The first is a little bit off topic to, to the book, but it actually ties in pretty neatly to what you were just talking about. Um, in, in the book, you talk about how our brains are adaptive organs that never stop changing, never stop growing. We hear a lot nowadays about um, neuroplasticity. Um, do you personally uh, believe in or take any steps to try to keep your brain as strong as it can possibly be for as long as it can possibly be? Do you think that th such a pursuit uh, is even worth pursuing because there are concrete steps that can or cannot uh, lead to better outcomes for brain longevity? Um, absolutely. And let me give you a plus side and a downside to neuroplasticity. 
Downside, you go through a traumatic, stressful period where you're like a total wreck for six months. You, you, you have PTSD from combat trauma, from sexual assault, or from who you go through some terrible period and your frontal cortex's structure will have changed as a result. That frontal cortex that it took you 25 years to put together to get into gleaming shape to finally like start planning your retirement, go through a traumatic period and your frontal cortex gets thinner. The neurons become less excitable. We know on a nuts and bolts level exactly how that works. That's a case of neuroplasticity and it's a pretty crummy, discouraging one. Your frontal cortex won't work as well. Now, the upside in terms of like the importance of like neuroplasticity and making your brain work better and brain longevity and all of that, is there anything I do? I have happily welcome the chance to like spend the last hour like you and I have been spending because you just like confronted me with it. Well, that sounds like if you decided that at 14 and then you decided to go do that. Whoa, good question. How do I deal with it? Okay. Like challenge me there with that one. Yeah, I've got four and a half synapses that did something different as a result of that question. And I just underwent neuroplasticity with that great challenging question. And thus that probably like delays my dementia by at least an hour and a half and it's onset somewhere down the line. Yeah, neuroplasticity, the brain is not set in stone. And that's for better or worse. Happy to have been of service <laughs> in that regard. Uh, finally, somebody somewhere is listening to this right now in their car and saying, oh, my God, this guy might be right. And at, 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 at 40 minutes ago, they were trying to find reasons to dismiss uh, your argument out of hand. And now they're thinking it's possible, at least, that we have no free will. That is, to those of us raised in the only world any of us have ever known, I think for most of us, a pretty terrifying prospect, but you argue it can ultimately be liberating. Uh, in, in what ways might we find having no free will a liberating concept? Well, just think about how much better of a world it is that we don't burn people at the stake when the weather is bad. Think about how much better of a world it is that if someone has an epileptic seizure, we don't think they have been consorting with Satan and they're demonically possessed. And that we figured out that rotten mothering does not cause schizophrenia. And that we figured out that cold, heartless mothers don't turn children into having autism. And that some kids have trouble learning to read because their eyes do something weird and they flip the letters around and something screwy with their cortex. And that we don't have certain states in this country that believe it is morally okay and scientifically advisable to try to punish somebody into having a different sexual orientation than they have. And that we figured out that there's a biology by which some people are going to be morbidly obese because there's a receptor in their brain that doesn't listen to a satiation hormone. And it's not because they secretly hate themselves and have no, at every single one of these steps where we have subtracted out a sense of responsibility 
and also how much better it is that the person who is born on third base, that we can understand they didn't earn their damn privileges in life at every one of these steps. The world becomes a better place. And we got to just keep doing this because we know we are still mired in some of those same assumptions. Wow. Okay. We figured out somewhere in recent decades, there's lots of different ways to love people. And it's okay to love in a different way than you do. And that's a good thing not to punish people for that. There's all sorts of new ones where we're going to have to do that as well. This is a good thing when we subtract a sense of responsibility out. And it's exactly sort of the, the embedded sort of toxic point that you made reference to, which is anyone sitting and listening to something like this, anyone who would sit and buy a book and read it, they're one of the lucky ones. They're not wondering where dinner is coming from tonight. They're not, you know, homeless. They're not, they're one of the lucky ones, which is to say they're the ones who have the most to benefit from this notion that we are the outcome of our efforts and stuff. For most people on this planet, the notion that there's no free will, that's a blessing. That's a good thing because we're running a world where we're willing to hold them responsible for crappy luck that they had no control over. This is a good thing. It must feel wonderful to have written a book like this that's not, you know, tailor-made for a wide audience, and yet, um, you know, I've seen it written about all over the place. Multiple friends have reached out to me and said, have you heard of this? You should uh, you should try to talk to this person on your show if, if you can get them. Um, I know, based on everything you've told us for the better part of an hour, you don't deserve praise for the book that you've written, but I'm going to give you some anyway. Congratulations on the, the, the not the success of the book, but the fact that, you know, it, it's it's penetrating the, 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 the conversation that we're having about what the hell it is that we're all doing here. Um, my guest has been Robert Sapolsky. The book is called Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will. Thank you. No, thanks for having me on and showing just how tough this is. For a couple of seconds now, I'm going to feel happy because you said that to me. Thank you for <laughs> saying that. I say hypocritically. <laughs> Thanks for having me on as well. My pleasure. <laughs>